Good morning. So, uh, just in case you're worried that after I talked to you last week about the finances, that all this has something to do with that, <laughs> it does not. Um, there were some electrical issues out at the pole this morning. NES is supposed to be working on it, but after everything that's gone on the past couple of days with the storms and stuff, we're not sure what time they're getting there. So, a few things have powered back up. If everything comes on like right in the middle of Matthew 1, that is not the Christmas star um, showing up, and just don't get overly distracted by it. I think Justin's going to work on something right now. The iPad's not connecting to the screen, and so that's what he's doing back here. My voice doesn't sound right, so like the whole morning's a disaster, right? Like everything's off already, and here's the deal. When everything's wrong on our end, and this is exactly what we're going to see in Matthew 1 today, is a lot of times when God shows up and does some of the best stuff that you see him do on his end. And so I'm really anticipating um, what we're going to see in Matthew 1 together here in the next few minutes and just the ways that God's going to reveal himself. And so I hope that this, this won't be a distraction for you this morning. Um, and speaking of last week, I did want to say a couple things as we get started. First off, thank you for your patience last week. I know that I did like part one in Acts 16 and then part two talking about finances and us giving out of a heart that loves Jesus, and that made it a super long morning, and you all were really, really patient uh, to stick with me, and I really appreciate that, and I especially want to say thank you uh, to our preschool and children's workers last week, because we had them pull double duty, and they hung in there the whole time for us, and so if you were working uh, in the preschool and children's wing last week, thank you so much. If you've got a spouse that was in there last week, and they're in there again this week, and they're not hearing me right now, would you tell them later how grateful we are every single week for those of you that, that serve with our kids, but especially last week, and we'll try to be mindful of not keeping you in there that long very often. I know I keep you a long time, a lot of times, but I just did, I wanted to say that and just acknowledge that we're really, really grateful uh, for the extra time that you put in last week. At the end of the service today, our kids are going to be coming in with us to take the Lord's Supper with us. And then one other thing about last week, if you looked in the worship guide today, you'll see that uh, last week's giving was like 175% of our weekly need, which was a great week. But I think it would be easy for you to draw a couple conclusions about that that aren't correct. And so I want to correct them before we get started this morning. The majority of that giving came in online before Sunday morning. It came in over the weekend. A lot of people do give online. And so you may be sitting there thinking, well, Andy gave us a bunch of information about the need and people gave to the need. And that's not true. Uh, people gave before we talked about it. Or you might even be thinking, oh, Andy did a good job of drumming up some support. I, I had nothing to do with it. That came in before I said a single word. So nothing to do with me and nothing to do with the need. And I think what was really encouraging to the staff was just the thought of God was doing that before us, ahead of like not dependent on us at all, not dependent on a single word that we said or, or any kind of response that you had to anything. That was just God going ahead of us, in front of us, and just reminding us, hey, I'm doing this even before you. Like Before you say a word about it, I already know, and I'm at work. And so I just want to make sure that when you see that today, you see that in him, and you thank him for that, and that he gets the credit for that. Um, also along those lines, just in the past few weeks, we've had some great moments of grace giving and generosity in the church. And I wanted to thank you for all these. You know, just a few weeks ago, we gave uh, over $5,300 to a family that was in need in the church. With the art show so far, we've raised over $1,200 to send to missionaries in Peru to buy Bibles for kids. And today's the last day for that. So if you've bought art, if you'll take that home at the end of the service today, and if you still want to make a contribution uh, to the, the mission effort and the Bibles in Peru, today would be the time to give to that. Uh, we had a craft fair a couple weekends ago that raised over $1,200 that's going toward missions and some other needs in the church. And then the last count I heard on our refugee stockings was that the church had put together 63 uh, really generous and extravagant stockings for refugees to have for Christmas. And we've talked about this in, in staff meeting with the staff that we love the fact that we're sitting here saying, hey, there's some uncertainty right now financially, and we don't, we don't have all the answers yet, but here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to hunker down and close our fists and just keep everything for ourselves. Like, so we don't have all the answers. You know what we're going to do? We're going to open up our hands more. We're going to give more. We're going to give more. We're going to trust that God has us covered and so we can pour stuff out generously and faithfully. And so thank you for doing that. And that's going to continue to be the mindset that we take because we believe that's what God's like. like he's not a God that takes and hoards for himself. 
It's what Christmas is. He's a God who gives and pours out and overflows in abundance to us. And because we know that's who he is and we trust him, that's who we want to be as his people. And I've, I've brought these cards in for like four straight weeks, intending to use them as an illustration. And every week I talk too much and don't get around to this. So I'm doing it at the beginning this week, all right? So when we get to the end, I don't look down and say, well, I didn't use the cards again. My, my kids have started asking me, like, why are you bringing those cards every week? I'm like, because I don't ever talk about them. And so here's the illustration I was thinking about. And it, I feel like it fits with everything we've been seeing in Acts about who God is and who he intends for his church to be. Everything we're seeing in Acts 15 about the gospel of Jesus alone, what we're going to see today in Matthew 1. And so you apply this to your life, to the gospel, to the church, every way you want. We may circle back to this a lot because when it hit me, I was like, this is really, this is what happens in Christianity when God really comes and works on his people and his grace. So my girls, they play like with a regular deck of cards. There's a game they play that they call war. I don't, and it's just the simple higher card. You know, like you've got half the deck, I've got half the deck. Flip them over, the higher card wins. And the point of the game is to get all the cards, you want to have the most cards. Now, this is my favorite card game, Uno. Um, my, I was actually, I was probably three or four when my grandma started playing Uno with me. And her husband was a pastor and a director of missions. And so she was a pastor's wife. And she did more VBSs and Sunday school and, and GA stuff that you could ever, like, that you could count. In, in all these different churches, and everybody looked at her as like just this great pastor's wife. Let me tell you something. Mamma would cheat at Uno like nobody's business. She, uh, I didn't know what she was doing at first. My hands were too little to hold my cards, so I had to lay them where she could see them. And then she would always deal draw fours off the bottom of the deck to herself. It took me a couple years to figure out why I could never beat Mamma at Uno. But she's the one that taught me how to play, and, I, and Sydney and Emery play with me sometimes now. But with Uno... It's the exact opposite of war, right? In war, you're trying to get all the cards. Whoever has all the cards wins. But in Uno, you're trying to get rid of all your cards. You know, if you've got a bunch of cards at the end of the game, you lose. The point is to get rid of your cards and have nothing left. And I was thinking about how if you sit down to play war and you think you're playing Uno, you're going to lose. <laughs> you're doing the complete wrong thing. Or if you sit down to play Uno and you think you're playing war, you're going to lose. Because the games are totally different. You could say the, the scorecard for the games, the rules are totally different. And it really matters that you know which game you're playing and you know how it's supposed to be played and you know what the goal is. And here's what I feel like I just keep seeing in Acts and, and in Matthew 1 and just in the gospel in general. That what is natural to us and what the world, what the world does what you and I naturally do in our hearts, and what every religion apart from the grace of God does, is we all go and we play war. It's like, I'm going to get everything I can for myself, like whether it's in the world or just naturally in my heart, but even in religion. I'm going I'm to stack up and, and, and collect and hoard all the good stuff and all the credentials and all the accomplishments and all the achievements I can for myself, and I'm going to hold on as tightly as I can, and it's going to be about me, and I'm going to prove myself. Like even in my religion, here's all my good stuff. Here's the stuff to my credit. Here's all the cards that I've collected. And I feel like God has come in Jesus. And he has said over and over and over, it's not a life of war. It's a life of uno. I'm not a god of war. Like he's not collecting and hoarding everything that he can for himself. He's a god of uno. He's giving it away. He's pouring out. He's, he's extravagant in his grace. And then he says, and I want you as my people, when I come to live in you, I want you to be set free from hoarding like it's a game of war. And I want you to be set free to pour out. In a game, to, to let go, to, that, that we think that the goal is to come and say, hey, here's everything I've got. Let me show you how much I have. And Jesus is saying, no, the real goal is when you come and admit, I've got nothing. My hands are empty. There's nothing to my credit. I've got nothing to offer, nothing to give. I need to receive from you. I need you to give to me. And that's the difference between Jesus alone like, I've got nothing, he has everything, I'll trust him for everything. Or Jesus plus, Jesus and. Like, here's what I'm bringing, here's what I've got, here's what I can offer, here's what I can add to this. 
And one of those is Christianity. One of those is the gospel. One of those is who God is and what he's done for his people and what Christmas is and, and what this whole thing's about. And one of those is what's natural to our hearts and natural to this world and our fallen sinful state. And they're nothing alike. Like we're playing two totally different games. Jesus came and he flipped the whole thing on its head. Like completely the opposite. And if we keep approaching our life and our religion and church like it's a game of war, we'll miss literally everything that God says and everything that he's done, and who he is, and who he's calling us to be. And even as a church, I just keep thinking about, like, I know, like, how common the mindset is in our church culture, Western Christianity, North American Christianity, Bible Belt Christianity, where it is, how much can we gather here? How many people, how much resources, how many facilities, how much can we pull in and then show and feel good about, like, this is what it looks like. Look, look at all the stuff that we have, Derek. Look, look at the, all the things that you can see and the appearances that we can put out that show how successful we are as an organization. That's war, church. And then you look at the book of Acts and you look what Jesus says to his church and he's saying, go, scatter. How much can you send how much can you give? How much can you equip people so that their entire life out there in the world is about making Jesus known? How much can you let go? How wide can you open your hands? Like, when, when you feel like you have less than you need, will you keep pouring out anyway? That's what excites me about everything I was saying a minute ago about the way that you've given in the past few weeks and the way we've poured out. And so we're not going to hoard here. And it's not just money. I'm talking people that if God moves you to start Bible studies outside this building and start house churches outside this building and we need to launch people to other countries you know, to, to take the gospel there and make disciples there, will we do that? Will we say we're not playing war with our people, we're not playing war with our resources, we're not playing war with our time, we don't want to hoard it all here. God's called us to play a game of Uno. Can you get rid of all of it? Can you just keep sending all of it? And so... Just however you want to look at it, for, for what Jesus is saying to you personally, where he said, I don't need you to gather a whole bunch of stuff and offer it to me. Come empty-handed and say that you have nothing and receive everything. For you personally in the gospel, like, do, you, do you see that that is what he said to you and what he's done for you? And then for us as a church, that if that's, what, if that's who he is and that's what he's done for us, that should define who we are. And it defines, and it is, listen, it is, I know it is a complete 180. Like it, it, it is two totally different sets of rules. And I want us to play a whole different game than what would be natural to us, than what we would do on our own, just in our own way, just that what we would, we, we would look out in the world or we would even look in the church world and we'd say, well, that's how they do it. Let's imitate that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Let's just keep looking at who God is in the Bible, who he reveals himself to be, and say, let's imitate that. Let him define us. Let him come and live in us and make us like him. And it will look completely different because he is completely different from the world. His message, his gospel is different than anything else you'll ever hear anywhere else in the world. And so when we're believing that and we're being changed by that, we'll be completely different. And so that's the cards illustration. It took me four weeks. Um, thank you, seriously, uh, for, for just your, your open hands and your willingness to be generous and to give in a grace-filled and spirit-filled way the past few weeks. And we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep looking for opportunities to say, how do we advance the gospel? How do we expand the kingdom far beyond us? How do we invest in things that are bigger than us and last forever, that really and truly matter, and not just stuff that's our little kingdom here? Um, and, and just if you'll be praying with me, that that'll be our mindset for your elders, your staff, our church as a whole, that God would unite us in this trust in him and this faith in him that, that he's providing, that he has what we need, and that we're going to keep looking to him and we're going to trust him. And then however he tells us to use it, that's how we want to use it. And again, time, money, resources, people, everything, like all of it from his hands through us, filtered out to his world for his purposes. So, whew. That's the intro. Matthew 1. I'm, I'm going to read. I'm going to ask you, what's this teach us about God? Um, I'd like for you to share a few things that stand out to you. I do have some thoughts, 
And I want to make sure that we are mindful of our children's workers and time and Lord's Supper at the end. And so if you've got stuff, please, in these first 10 minutes or so, share it. I'll try to like keep my commentary on your thoughts shorter so that you've got a little more time. And then I do have some things I really feel like God's just hammered this week for me, and it's been good for my heart, and I want to share those with you. So let's pray together and jump into Matthew 1. Father, thank you for this time right now. And thank you that on a morning where, from our perspective, all these little things don't seem to be right or what we feel like they should be, that not a single bit of that gets in your way or stops you at all, that so often you have shown us over and over and over that this is the very time and the very place where you show up the most and you work the most, because then we look and we say, that had to be God. There wasn't anything else causing that. And so, Father, I pray with expectation and anticipation right now for what you're about to do, and I ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. By your Spirit, from your Word, teach us and show yourself to us. Help us to know you and love you more. Work in our hearts and build us up as your church and your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right. First of all, just to satisfy any curiosity you've got. No, I do not know how to pronounce all those names. I just fake it and keep going. And I figure if I say it with enough confidence, you'll think, well, that must be how you say it. <laughs> no idea. All right, aside from that, what's, what does that teach you about God? God fulfills his word. What specific things got you...
Yeah. Yeah, especially the promises to Abraham and then repeats those promises to Isaac, repeats those promises to Jacob, promises to David, like all these names that you see in this genealogy, there are specific promises God made to them that when we get to the climax of Jesus, that's the fulfillment of all those promises. And then the same thing with him showing up and telling Mary and Joseph what he's about to do, just over and over and over, God fulfills his word. What else stands out to you? God can redeem the messiest, most dysfunctional, that's dysfunctional, (laughs) horrible situations. And we're going to come back to this and spend some time on it. But when Carol says messiest, most dysfunctional, horrible situations, if you don't know some of the backstories for these people, I'm going to give them to you in a little while. Like, she means messiest, most dysfunctional, horrible situations you can imagine. And this is God working in the middle of all of them and redeeming it and ultimately bringing the Savior of the world out of this type of mess. And we will come back to that in a few minutes. I just want to give you all some more time real quickly. What else stands out to you, truths about God? Yeah, that God chooses who he will exalt. And let's, let's go ahead and, you know, so this is a Jewish genealogy. And culturally, socially, first of all, you would only name, the, you would trace it through the men. And you only name the men. Like, it's already, like, weird that Matthew parenthetically includes these four women. But since people, you know, we've heard this twice already, let's just go ahead and let's mark them, and then we'll come back to it in a minute. But then what's even weirder is if Matthew's going to pick women, that he picks these women. So the first one he picks here is Tamar, you know, that she has twins with Judah. And then Rahab, Ruth, and then the wife of Uriah, who we know as Bathsheba. So these are the four women that he picks. You probably know Bathsheba's story the best, but a quick rundown here. Tamar is a Canaanite. She's not a Jew. She marries Judah's oldest son. He dies as a result of his sinfulness. She's supposed to marry his younger brother who won't fulfill the the marital duties that God's given him in the Old Testament, so he dies. So then there's a younger son that Judah has that he promises Tamar when he's old enough you can marry him, which all of that is the, was the, you know, the, the established like, legal custom of the time, how you dealt with a widow within your family. Like, this is what they were legally bound to do and, and what God spoke within Israel that he later told them, this is the law, this is how you handle it. Well, Judah unfaithfully never gives his youngest son to Tamar, ignores her, leaves her, alone, isolated, impoverished, rejected. She dresses up as a prostitute, deceives Judah. He engages her services. She gets pregnant, waits until the time comes. He, in self-righteousness, learns that she's pregnant, doesn't know it was her, wants to have her killed for getting pregnant. She pulls out the staff and and the stuff that he left with her as a, a pledge that he would come back and pay her. And she's like, hey, whoever owns these, that's the father of these children. Like It's complete shame for Judah. I mean, like, when you, messiest, most dysfunctional, horrible situation that your daughter-in-law, who you don't know it's her, who you've lied to her, you haven't provided for the way you should, your family's totally disowned her, you think she's a prostitute, you're more interested in her when she's a prostitute than when she's your daughter-in-law, you're going to kill her for her sin, the hypocrisy that you have, all that. And Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is like, hey, let's highlight that. <laughs> we want to talk about that. Rahab. Canaanite in Jericho, prostitute. We'll include her. Ruth, Moabite. Do you know anything about where the Moabites came from? Lot, you know, that 
pillar of great stories in Genesis. Flees Sodom and Gomorrah. His daughters both get him drunk, sleep with him because they don't have husbands. The Moabites are the incestuous descendants of Lot and one of his own daughters. That they were so despised within Judaism that that it was said that they weren't even allowed to come into the... Moabites were not allowed in the temple. So they can't come in the temple, but God says, I'll include them in the family of Jesus. (laughs) That's the third one. Then Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David, who this would be our proudest moment as Jews, right? our greatest king, the one that, we're, the one that we hold, like, is still the name of David, is the one associated with the Messiah, the promises that God's going to send another king like David. And out of all the things out of David's life that Matthew could draw attention to, he says, here's what I'll draw attention to. He murdered one of his best friends, one of his 30 mighty men, one of his closest warriors. He murdered him to cover up his adultery with that man's wife. And God chooses the son that he eventually has with that wife to be the next king. So those are the four stories everybody's talking about. When the people that God chooses and who he will exalt, let's just say slash use, the situations that he redeems. When I say it out loud standing up here, it's even messier than you think. Be honest. If you weren't totally familiar with some of those stories, aren't they worse than you thought they would be once I say them out loud? Like we're not, I mean, they're bad. And this is why God's, not, not just that he's redeeming it, he's drawing attention to it in ways that would offend social norms and cultural norms. He's like, this is what I want you to see most of all. All right, go on and then we'll come back to that. Just a couple more truths about God that stand out to you in light of all that. God takes time with his plans. But this is when God decides to work out the most important part of, of his entire plan of salvation. We're talking from Abraham to Jesus is 2,000 years. And the whole time in that 2,000 years, he's at work. One of the things Matthew shows, he was always at work, guiding the course of history guiding this genealogy, guiding this family tree to come down to the point when Jesus is here. Like, all of it was in his hands, and all of it was him fulfilling his promises. And, and there was times when you may not see it, and it doesn't look like it, and you're thinking, this is taking so long, but always he's at work, and, and developing something, bringing something about, telling a story that's so much greater because of the way that he let it play out over time. God takes time with his plans, and the time that he takes is for his purposes, for his reasons. What else? One more if you want to, and then I'll just I'll throw out a bunch too, and then we'll talk about application at the end. Yeah, God is a God of organization, not chaos. And there's actually something with these fourteens. Like the, the details that when, Matt, when the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to organize the genealogy this way, that 14, 14, 14, this is really, really neat to me. I'm a math dork. Um, so David, you know, the, the first great king of Israel, became the symbol of there's a greater king coming, a greater David coming. Uh, one who's like David but greater than David, that God promised in 2 Samuel 7 when he made the promise, this descendant who will rule forever and sit on the throne forever. And so David and Messiah became really closely associated in Jewish thought, that, that this son of David, descendant of David, the king like David was going to be the Messiah. Well, in, in Hebrew, all your letters in the alphabet have numerical values. And, so, and you also don't write vowels. You just spell with consonants. And so David would be DVD, and not like the thing that you used to put in a DVD player back before we streamed everything, but that's David. Well, D has the value of 4, V has the value of 6, D has the value of 4, and so the number of David is 14. And so even in, just even this little detail in the way that God structures the genealogy when the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to write out this way, like each section 
say, leap, this is who Jesus is, David, David, David. Like just screaming over and over and over, here's what I've been doing in history. This promised David, this son of David, this greater David, he's coming, David, 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 and he's Jesus. Jesus is all that, all the promises, all the things you've anticipated, all the things that I've said I'm going to do, all of it, for all these long generations, all of it in Jesus. Like just screaming who Jesus is. And so, yeah, that, that organization, even on a level where sometimes we don't see it, it looks like chaos to us. Right? Like, step down into that nasty moment with Judah and Tamar, that doesn't look like the organization of God from our perspective. But it is. You know, step down into that moment with David and Bathsheba and Uriah. It doesn't look like the organization. of It looks like chaos. It looks like the best, the best hope that Israel had has fallen apart in that moment. The, the man after God's own heart is failing epically, and yet God's at work in that moment. And so, yeah, God is a God of organization, not chaos. Here's some things that, that stood out to me, and it's all along the same lines, and God does this so often for us in here where everything that you're seeing and you're saying, it just re-emphasizes and reiterates the stuff I felt like you were saying to me. But I wanted to write down these four women and just think about who they are again. I know I said it out loud, but Tamar is a Canaanite. Canaanite. And remember how significant that is, to be a non-Jew, non-Israelite, when the Jews felt like we're the people of God and, and God's done something special in us to the exclusion. We're clean, everybody else is unclean. We're holy, everybody else is unholy. We're set apart from God. They're, they're pagans who are far from God. So we've got a Canaanite prostitute, 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 who was unloved and rejected. Rejected by brother-in-law, rejected by her father-in-law, outcast. Rahab, same song, second verse. Canaanite, prostitute. Ruth, a Moabite, which represented the incest a lot. And you know, so rejected that they can't even be in the temple, right? Not in the temple. And also, like if you read Ruth, a very questionable night at Boaz's feet um, that we don't have to dive into just because we've already got enough evidence here of what God's doing. Bathsheba, and notice with her that God doesn't even mention her name the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. It's like, again, he's intentionally saying, I'm going to highlight this worst moment. I'm going to remind you that when David took her as his wife, she was married to someone else, and that he murdered that man, that that man's in the list of his 30 greatest warriors, that that's, hey, that's your best king. That's the best that you've got to offer. You want to bring your credentials to me? You want to, that's what your credentials are. And that's what God's saying right there. And so the other thing is the Hittites, when it's Uriah the Hittite, the Hittites were part of the Canaanites that the, the Israelites were supposed to drive out of the country originally and failed to. Like The only reason the Hittites are there is because the Israelites did not originally do what God told them to do when he first gave them the promised land. And so the Hittites themselves represent the failure of the Israelites to obey God. And then they continue to live then in Israel as this small minority. So God's, the minority that the Israelites would look down on, despise the reminder of their failure, the adultery that David commits with Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah. This, God takes an entire genealogy of Jesus and he uses it to emphasize these things. He makes these things stand out. He violates social norms, cultural norms, includes women when nobody would include them, and then he picks the women who represent the stories that they would want to forget the most. Like if you were a, any type of historian in Israel, these are the stories you never want to talk about again. These are the stories when somebody starts talking about, like, can't we just let the past be in the past? And God's like, no, I've got things to say about this. 
I've got lessons to teach you. They're truths that you will only learn when you realize you've got nothing to offer me. There's truths that you will only learn when you realize what a dysfunctional mess you are. That your best moments, like your best people, Judah and David, those are your worst moments. <laughs> like if that's the best you've got, how hopeless are you? How dark is it for you? And then when you realize how many options God had to do this differently, Judah's got 11 other brothers. And he's not the firstborn. Like why in the world does God pick Judah to be the one that all the kings come from. Certainly not because of Judah. But that's why he picks Judah. <laughs> he picks Judah because he's going to teach you something about the way that he chooses and he uses and he exalts and he picks. And it's not about you. It's not about the person that he picks. It's about him. How will you see more of him? How will you more clearly see who he is? How will his grace and his redemption and his glory and his sovereign work and his ability to fulfill his purposes and to redeem all of our mess, how will that be most clearly seen? By picking the disaster and working through the disaster. Right? By, by taking the worst moments of these people's lives and saying, I'm going to use those to bring about the best moment in the history of the world. The birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised king, the savior of the world, the one who will save his people from their sins. He will come from a whole bunch of sinners and he will save those sinners from their sins. Like that's how good God is. That's how gracious God is. And so he picks these people and highlights and, and emphasizes and just some of the truths that stood out to me. And I'll go kind of quickly here. But the first one is God doesn't hide our sin. He doesn't say, hey, let's not talk about that anymore. Like, first of all, he wrote it all down in Genesis and Joshua and 2 Samuel. Like, you've got the stories originally. He could have just not had them recorded the first time. Like, let's do some selective editing here and just give you the highlights of David's life. He doesn't do that. But then, 2,000 years later, for, for Judah, you know, a thousand years later for David. Like we're like you want to talk about this is the distant past. This is a thousand and two thousand years gone, and God's like, I'm going to bring it up again. Not going to hide it, not going to ignore it, not going to gloss it over, not going to polish it up, not going to pretend like it's better than it was. We're going to be honest about it. That's what we're saying. God doesn't hide our sin. He's honest about it. He's honest about our sin. He's honest about what a mess we are. And just a quick application here. When you realize that that's the way that God treats your sin, do you know one of the things this does for you spiritually? It frees you up to do the same thing. Because you don't have to play some game now where you're like, well, God's pretending this stuff didn't happen. He's not talking about it anymore, so I can't talk about it anymore. I can't confess it. I've got to pretend it didn't happen. I've got to put on a good face and, and have this good external appearance and not admit what a, a wretched, dysfunctional mess that I am. It's like, no, God's going to talk about it honestly. That frees you to talk about it honestly. So here's my worst moments. Here's my biggest struggles, my biggest failures. And not in a way that minimizes it or makes light of it. He's not doing that here. He's saying, this is what it really was. It's as bad as you think. But we can be honest about it because God doesn't hide our sin. But then here's the thing that I also want you to see with this. God doesn't hide from our sin. It's not, well, Judah, that was awful. Get away from me. Don't come close to me. I'm never going to associate with you again. I can't be connected to that. It's not, hey, David, I tried, man. Like, you were this little shepherd boy, youngest in your family. I did everything for you, gave everything to you. You blew it. You're done. Stay away from me. I can't be associated with it. You know how awful that is? Adultery with one of your best warriors, murdered him to cover it up. Don't ever admit it till I finally come and confront you. Do you know how awful that is, David? Stay away from me. I, I'm too holy. I can't be associated with that. He doesn't hide from their sin. What does he do? Like, first of all, he includes them in this grand historical worldwide plan to bring about the Savior and Messiah of the world. He chooses them. The biggest failures, the biggest mistakes, 
the biggest disasters. He, like he handpicks Judah out of 12 brothers. He handpicks David out of eight brothers. He handpicks Solomon out of all of David's wives and all of David's children who could have been king. He picks the son of Bathsheba. He's like, is God looking at them and then God looking at you and God looking at me? And he's saying, I'm not afraid of your mess. I'm not driving you away and I'm not running away. I'm going to step into your mess and I'm going to use your mess. That's what God's telling you today. That's how good he is. That's how gracious he is. That's how powerful his redemption is. That he doesn't hide from our sin because God isn't ashamed to associate with sinners. He says, I'm going to put you in my family tree. When my son comes, his earthly legacy will be Canaanites and Moabites and prostitutes and incest and adultery and murder. I'll let him be associated with that. Why? Because that's who he came for. Because that's who needs him. That's why he's here. Right? If he can't reach out and grab those people, he came for no reason. This is exactly why he came. And from the very beginning, before he's born, he's saying, I'm here for you in your darkest moment, your worst moment, your biggest failure, that the blackest sin in the depths of your heart, Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with it. He'll take it on himself. He'll bear it. He'll make it his own. He'll be called by your name, by your sin. And he'll take it from you in a way that redeems all of it. You, your sin is not a threat to his holiness. Like sometimes we think about God's holiness in that way, like almost like sin's kryptonite for him. Like he can't handle it. He's going to step away. No, he dives straight into it. Right? He, he redeems it in a way where he takes it on himself. He deals with it. He pays the price for it. Like everything that needs to be done so that justice is served with your sin, he does it, and then he breaks it forever, casts it away forever, removes it forever. He overcomes it. Like he's, his grace is greater than your sin. His holiness is more powerful than your sin. And so... God isn't ashamed to associate with sinners. God steps into our sin. Like he doesn't avoid it. I mean, this is what happens on the cross, that Jesus steps in and God takes your sin off of you and puts it on him. Like he is wearing it, bearing your sin, bearing the wrath of God against your sin. And then in this double transaction, God takes the righteousness of Jesus all the perfection of Jesus, and he places it on you. When, when Paul uses the word to impute in Romans 4, and it means to count, like a counting term, if you were, if you were an accountant, that he's saying that, that he counts this sin as if it belongs to Jesus, and he counts Jesus' righteousness as if it belongs to you, like, like literally like you've got two ledgers or two bank accounts, and there, there's debt, bankruptcy on your side, and he makes a journal entry on Jesus' side and puts all your debt over there. And then there was infinite... Do everything you need. God steps into our sin. And uh, Carol said this, but God redeems our sin. Like, it's not just that he deals with it and takes care of it. He does do that, but there's also more than that. We see that here. He doesn't just get rid of their sin. He uses their sin in the story that he's telling to bring about Jesus. Like their sin is an important factor in these really, in the greatest thing that God's ever done in the history of the world. Like when we say redeems our sin, here's the way I would say it that he brings his best work, bringing Jesus into the world and saving us from our worst moments. That's what redemption means. Like, and I was thinking of ways to illustrate this, because I feel like it's so important to try to grasp this. And I was thinking if you had two great chefs, like 
world famous, and they're in some kind of cooking competition. And the first chef has you fly all over the world. I mean, like France and Italy, all the places that are known for food, and get him the absolute best ingredients. And he cooks this, this great meal for you. And you're like, man, that is great. He's a great chef. But then the second chef strolls into your kitchen. He's like, give me your trash. Give me everything in your refrigerator that's ruined. Give me the stuff that you burnt last night and threw away. Give me the, the worst things you've ever cooked. Give me all your garbage and your mess and everything else. And he takes all that and he starts doing something that you've never seen before. And he gets done. And if we wanted to apply it to God, it's like he says, no, give me your sharpest and biggest kitchen knife. And he stabs himself in the chest. And this blood trickles in and he stirs it a few more times. And he's like, here, try this. And he's like, that's the best thing I've ever tasted. This chef that could take good ingredients and bring something good out of them, that's impressive. But the chef that can take the absolute worst stuff, the ruined stuff, the rotten stuff, the discarded stuff, the stuff that you've thrown away, and he can bring the best thing ever out of that, there's nobody else like that. That's redemption. That's what he's doing with Judah and with, with Tamar and Judah with Rahab and with Ruth and with Bathsheba and with David, he's saying, I'll take their worst moments and I'll bring about my best. I don't need your best. Your best is awful anyway. David was the best and he's awful. I don't need your best. I've come to take your worst. I've come to take your biggest failures, your biggest mistakes, the, the, the darkest and blackest sin of your entire life, and I'm bringing a Savior. I'm bringing someone who can handle all of it, who can take all, who can redeem all of it, who can turn it all for good. Like I really believe that the right way to understand redemption is that when God finishes the work, and listen, you, you don't see it always. Like until Jesus comes, they don't see all of it. But the right way to understand redemption is that when God gets done, it will be better than it could have been otherwise. And I mean like you, if you hadn't sinned, hadn't fallen, if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the fruit... Like that original perfection, somehow it was perfect, but this will be better. Because you went down here, you go, it's higher up here. And, and I think we can see it a little bit just when we're like, because we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know to praise God for his forgiving grace, his restoring grace, his redemptive. There's all sorts of aspects of God's character that we see only after the fall. And so just that in and of itself is rich. But I, my favorite story about it. I grew up in a really, really small town uh, in eastern Kentucky in the mountains, like so little that we only had one high school in the whole county, and I had like 155 people in my graduating class. So for the whole county, 155 people graduated, like tiny, tiny. We loved sports. It was Kentucky, so we loved basketball, but we had never been very good. <laughs> like in my whole life, we made it to one state tournament. The girls made it and lost in the first round. I graduated, went out, just we weren't good. We usually didn't make it out of the district. Um, but the first year, 12 years ago, I think it was, the first year that I moved here, um, the girls made this run in the state tournament. And they had this team that when they were freshmen, they had all, everybody, this is the team. They're really, really good. You know how that is in a small town. Well, they made it to the state tournament, and we had this star point guard who was a really good shooter, a great free throw shooter. She got fouled at the end of the game on a three, had a chance to shoot three free throws to win the game. Stepped up there and missed the first one, missed the second one, missed all three. We lost. She just flat out choked. She hadn't missed three straight free throws all year. Well, sophomore year, they didn't make it back. Junior year, they didn't make it back. Senior year, they make it back to the state tournament. And they win the Sweet 16 game, the Elite Eight game, Final Four. We end up in the championship game, and it was up in Bowling Green. So Christy and I drove up to watch it against this massive private Catholic school from Louisville. Like, it's straight-up Hoosiers movie. Like, it really is. I mean, like, they had more girls in one, like, in ninth grade than we had in our entire high school. And, you know, they could recruit from the whole area because they were a private school. And somehow, like, we just got clawed and hung around. It was real close. And at the very end, we tied it up, and it went into overtime. So state championship game in overtime now. 
and it comes down to the last possession. We've got the ball, and the same girl, Angie, who'd missed the three free throws her freshman year, comes down, and she comes off a pick, like the right side of the, the free throw line on the elbow, and she pump fakes this girl, and the girl jumps, and she ducks underneath. Like I'm talking like high degree of difficulty with one second on the clock. It ducks underneath and shoots this shot and hits it. Half of that stadium lost its mind. Like, and I would say that we were hugging people we didn't know, but the town was so small that we knew everybody. So we were hugging people we didn't know. But I mean, it was like high five and scream. And there was people crying. I mean, like just insane. And listen, if she had won a state championship her freshman year, it would have been awesome, right? I'm not saying it wouldn't have been great. It would have been great. But do you know how much sweeter it was? when she wins that way after she had blown it so bad three years earlier. Like, do you know what, it, like the, what re, the, the depth and the complexity to the joy that redemption brings? And that's what God's doing here in Jesus. He's like, yeah, yes, disaster, yes, failure, and it's as bad as you think. You, yes, you absolutely blew it. And do you know how sweet it'll be when I fix it all, when I make it all right? When, I, when that is the ingredient I use to make this so much better. Like that's what he's promising in Jesus. And, and even to the point where I was looking there, when, when you think about, so you, you trace it all through their history, it's like disaster, 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 sinner, sinner, sinner. How in the world is God going to fix this? Because they just keep passing it on, right? And then you get to verse 20, and it's like, no, 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 this will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. That God's coming in and he is doing something. He's stepping into our sin, but in a different way, where what you see is his spiritual work is more powerful than our sin. That he breaks the power and the stain of our sin. It's not passed on to Jesus. Jesus is a greater David. He's a different David. He's a greater Judah. He's a different Judah. He's a greater Abraham. He's a different Abraham. He didn't inherit all their mess and all their sinfulness. Like He willingly took it on. But in his core, in his nature, because the Spirit of God did something that's never been seen before, he steps in as the only perfect man that ever lived. And his perfection stronger than our imperfection. His holiness is stronger than our sin. Like He can bear it without it tainting him. He can pay for it without it changing him. He can become like us without becoming a sinner like us. He can take your sin on himself, and he's still the Holy Son of God, and it's why death can't hold him. This is the greatest story that's ever been told. And, and when you look at the names that are given to him here, like what it says about who he is, that Christ, you know, Messiah means anointed one, chosen one. He's the anointed king, the chosen king, the promised king. The God, but then you see Jesus means the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. And you see this is not the kind of king you expected. You expect a king who comes and his people do all this stuff for him because of how worthy he is. And instead you have a king who comes and he does all this stuff for his people because of how unworthy they are. And he comes to give to his people and to save his people, to rescue unworthy people. Instead of drawing worthy people to himself, he comes and he's like, hey, you know what? Those of you that think you're worthy, let me remind you of who you really are. Those of you that are proud to have David and Abraham and Judah in your genealogy, let me remind you of who you really are. So a couple more just truths that I wrote down as we wrap up here and move towards the Lord's Supper and as you're just focusing your mind on the Lord's Supper here that God violates social norms with his gospel God violates cultural norms with his gospel he is not afraid to turn everything on its head. It's where we started today. Like he has changed everything. We should be different if we're following him. And then uh, this one was really good for me this week. God attacks the pride of the self-righteous, religious, and well-connected with his gospel. Like everything that the Jews, the, the religious Jews would have taken pride in. Like every single person they would have pointed to. And it was a big deal to them to be connected to these significant fig figures in, in history. And God comes and is like, all the stuff you take pride in, let me remind you of how dark and ugly it really is. Why would you take pride in that? 
Yeah, you're right. You're right. You are connected to David. You're just like David. You're right. You are connected to Judah. You're just like Judah. You need a Savior just as much as they did. Everything that you would take pride in is things you should be ashamed of. And he humbles us. And everything that we would point to in ourselves, everything we would point to in in human accomplishments and human achievements and, and even human religious effort, he's like, that's not your source of pride. Jesus is. Jesus is. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything they weren't. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything you're not. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that you need. And then I was thinking about just this picture of redemption. And I know like, there's, there is a, I'm not going to write this down, I'll just say it and you can write it down if you want to. There is a misconception sometimes, hey, when you talk like this, that God takes our worst moments and does his best work, if you're not careful, it'll encourage people to sin more. Well, if that's what God does, I'll just go sin more and then God will redeem more. Paul deals with that in Romans 6, that teaching the true gospel does lead to people having that misunderstanding. And Paul addresses it in Romans 6. But what I would say to you is that really understanding redemption does not encourage you to sin more. It encourages you to admit that you already sin that much. Do you hear the difference there? You don't need a license to go sin more. You're going to either way. And you've got enough sin in the depths of your heart to ruin an entire universe. Adam and Eve already proved it, right? Like, if you really think, well, hey, that allows me to sin more so that God can redeem more, then the pride in your heart of thinking that you haven't already sinned that much is so wretched that that's exactly what God needs to save you from. And this isn't a license to sin more. This is freedom to admit how much you've already sinned, how much sin there is in your heart, how much you need somebody to come and rescue you. Because the deal is, as bad as we're saying David is, let's be honest, none of us are better than David. But humanly speaking, he really did have some high points. He trusted God. He did some great stuff. And he's an absolute disaster. He, if he's the best we can hold up, and he needs Jesus... He needs Jesus to come and redeem the story of his life. How much do we need Jesus to redeem the story of our lives? And then I I just had this thought. Even the genealogy. I mean, you know, who skips the genealogy, honestly? How many of you, when you're doing your yearly Bible reading, you're just like, let's go on, right? Even the genealogy, did I spell that right? I may not have. You know what it says, is the gospel. Like God doesn't even throw away the genealogy. He's like, I'm going to use the genealogy to emphasize the gospel one more time. How serious is God about his gospel? Everything's about it. Even the genealogy's about it. Everything. How dare we ever function as a church as if it's not all about the gospel? The whole thing is the gospel. This redeeming, saving, gracious, restoring, coming to us, giving us everything God. That's what it's about. And the other thing with that, when we say that it really is about his gospel, it's about him. That's why we can be honest about our disasters. Why we can say, Judah wasn't that great. David wasn't that great. You know, Our people, they weren't that great. We're not that great. If it's about you and me, if it's about us, we better make us look good, right? Because it depends. I've got to look good, so I can't admit how bad off I am. But once I know that it's about God, that it's all about him, well, guess what? The pressure's off. It's okay that you're a disaster. Because you being a disaster and him coming and loving you and redeeming that and choosing to use you out of all the people he would pick and he picks you, how much more glory is it when when you just glory for God, when you're honest and you're like, this is who I really was apart from Jesus. This is, what, this is what brokenness and sinfulness and failure looks like. And this is who he is. This is what he does. See the real him because he used somebody like me. He really used somebody like me. And then my last thought on all this, I was just thinking when God redeems like this, when he takes messes like this, you know what it means? This is why he always wins. Somebody said that a few weeks ago, and it stuck with me after you said it, that the enemy never wins. Because whatever he can do, however awful it looks, the more awful it is, the better work God brings out of it. Right? Like Satan never wins. He 
he polluted the people of God with sin in ways that we almost can't imagine. And God was at work in the middle of all of it, bringing about his son, bringing about his savior, bringing about his king, bringing about his Messiah. And so I think one of the misunderstandings we have sometimes is that we kind of think about God and, and Satan like they're equal opposites, like duking this thing out. Like, you know, like it's Rocky and Apollo. And it's like, I don't know. Like sometimes God's got the upper hand, sometimes Satan does. And the movie ends and they're both swinging at each other's heads and who knows what's going to happen. It's not what it's like. Or if that's, if that's like too dated for some of you, it's, it's Harry and Voldemort. You know, it's like... <laughs> Their wands are locked, and I just hope there's enough goodness in Harry to push that little golden light into Voldemort's wand, and, and maybe it'll be strong enough. Like, it's not what it's like. like. If you want to think of what it's like, God's J.K. Rowling <laughs> or Sylvester Stallone, like outside the movie, outside the book, and he's this awesome storyteller. He's the greatest author who's ever written, and he's written a story across all of history to say, this is who I am. And he's above all, and, and all the characters inside the story, you and me and the angels and the demons, we're all inside his story, and he's up here telling his story. And there's no equal. And then the most amazing thing of all, and this is where Christmas is, is that the only way that the people inside the story could ever know the storyteller, because right? the only world they know is inside the story, is if he said, I'm going to step down, I'm going to write myself into my own story so they can meet me and know me. And that's what he did in Jesus. This is the author stepping down into the story and saying, I'll become one of you so that you can know me, so that you can become like me. And so two words for Christmas this morning that I want, to, I want you to think about. The humility of God at Christmas. The one who's different from everyone else. The one who's above. The one who's beyond and outside humbles himself to step down in and be one of us, to be like one of the creatures, to, in, in a sense, to, to let go of all the things that make him unique and different when he comes down and becomes one of us. The humility of God at Christmas, and then the intimacy of God at Christmas. That last name in this section, Emmanuel. God with us, like he stepped down in with us, not God far removed, not God distant, not God unknown writing a story. And we have, you know, it's not Romeo and Juliet not even knowing that Shakespeare exists and not knowing that the reason they both die at the end is because Shakespeare wrote it that way. It's not like that. It's a God stepping down into the story and making him and being with us and associating with us, even associating with the worst and darkest and blackest moments of our story and saying, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not embarrassed. I'm not distant from you. I'm going to take it and I'm going to fix it and I'm going to redeem it and I'm going to cleanse it and I'm going to save you. The intimacy of God to want to be with you like that, to come and chase you down inside creation. Like the biggest step that's ever been taken in the history of the universe is a God who was outside creation. I don't even know what that means, but outside creation, stepping into creation to be with you. That's the gospel. That's Christmas. That's who God is. And in just a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper to remind us of all that, to thank God for that, to celebrate that. Our kids are coming in right now. Parents, if you want to stand up and so your kids can find you. And just as you're ready, you can go ahead and start opening the elements. We'll take them together here in just a minute. thinking about the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus I want you to think about that he was a king who came not that his people would do things for him because he was so worthy he was a king who came to do things for his people because we were so unworthy that's the type of king that he was and uh, as I was running this morning and just thinking through everything this psalm was in my mind and and I want you to hear this psalm, hear the gospel, the promise of the gospel written a thousand years before Jesus came. It's Psalm 130. And he, the psalmist says, 
Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. He knows how black and how dark and how desperate he is. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. Steadfast, never-ending, never-turning-away love. And with him is full redemption for all of it. Your worst moments, your darkest moments, full redemption. He himself, nobody else, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. That's what Christmas is. That's what the gospel is. That's what the Lord's Supper is. And so Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. this cup is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me he turned the whole world upside down with who he is and what he did I pray that he's turning our lives upside down I pray that he's turning this church upside down Will you pray that with me and then we're going to worship together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you that your gospel is so significant that it penetrates everything, even a genealogy in Matthew 1. Thank you that your gospel is so big that it reaches back through all of history and claims every story and wraps it up in your great story. Father, do that with our lives. By your grace, take our lives and make them your gospel. Make us that type of church and that type of people. We ask you to do it because you're the only one who can. We, we really have nothing to offer. And you have everything and we trust you and we believe you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen.